hey, what's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thanks for checking into the old YouTube channel. Uh, you know, the other day, um, there was an interesting trend on Twitter. Everybody was posting a little thing called My Religious Experience, and they were showing how that they had changed their views or their denominations or whatever else their spiritual experience did over the years. And I thought, okay, well, that's pretty clever. I'll, I'll put mine up there, too. And uh, mine is a little bit more complicated <laughs> than some people. Uh, because mine went something like this, Lutheran to Pentecostal to non-denominational to Presbyterian, Quaker, Brethren, Reformed, EPC, PCA, something like that. And there's all these weird, um, kind of little weird nuances in my in my journey that maybe aren't aren't as apparent in other people's journeys. And so I thought I'd do a little, little uh, well, kind of a personal retrospective here about my own spiritual journey and how it is I came into the Reformed faith, especially how it is I became Reformed. Now, when I posted that on Twitter, I got an interesting comment from somebody. One person said that that sounds like a lot of changes, and I know it does, especially when I listed it out in so many little iterations. But actually, um, it's not much like a squirrel cro crossing the street, you know, how a squirrel like darts all over the place and he has no idea where he's going and the last minute he panics and gets smushed by the car. That's not exactly what happened for me. Instead, I think it was more like a linear trajectory. And so I thought I would uh, just go a little bit personal today and talk about how my own faith journey traversed over the years and especially how it is I came to be reformed. And uh, that brought up another question that some people were asking is, what's the next stage for me? Is there somewhere else I'm going, Eastern Orthodox or whatever else it is? And I, and I do think that the answer to that is no. I think for the most part, my theology has uh, has crystallized and has materialized over over the months of the year so that who I am today is pretty much who I'm going to be for the long haul. Now, that doesn't mean I don't keep learning. I keep learning all the time. I'm a studier by nature. I'm a student by nature. Part of my job requires me to delve into theologians and works and writings and scripture. So I'm constantly thinking about things, but I don't think there are any major changes coming up in, in my future, for goodness sakes, um, because it wasn't that I was bouncing back and forth between a lot of various concepts, but I was progressing and maturing to a certain state and degree. So I thought I'd just take you through that. And if this is boring, by all means, click on something else. I'm sure there's some other thing on YouTube that you could watch. But if you're in the mood to just kind of hang out with me for a few moments and just kind of walk down memory lane to find out how it is that I became the person that I am today, then maybe this will interest you in some way. So let's start off with my childhood. Now, I've said this many times before that I grew up Lutheran, and uh, people ask me, well, what branch of Lutheranism did you grow up in? The answer to that, unfortunately, is the most liberal branch there is, which is the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And some people have joked that it's neither E nor L nor C anymore because it doesn't seem to be Lutheran, uh, doesn't seem to be evangelical, and is hardly a church by some definitions, especially if you're going to define the church as a body in which the word of God is preached rightly, the sacraments are, are administered faithfully and church discipline is present, then the <laughs> the current state of the ELCA is nothing like that. But um, for me, I did learn some things of great importance even in my earliest years. And now this is before I was even saved. I hadn't even had a conversion experience to this point. But nevertheless, sitting there in that Gothic, the great Gothic, Gothic cathedral, 
in which there's stained glass everywhere, uh, stained glass that I wouldn't put in my church today because there's a lot of uh, images of Christ and things like that. Uh, statues of the saints, the priests or the pastors wore heavy vestments and robes and albs and things like that, and we had acolytes and all kinds of uh, religious artifice. But I do remember sitting there in the pew, we used to sit in like the second or third pew to the front on the left-hand side, and a lot of times I brought my little G.I. Joe action figures and just played throughout, throughout the service. But I was eventually struck with just the awe and the wonder of God and um, feeling overwhelmed by God's greatness. Even from the time I was a child, there was no doubt that God was real to me. He was very real indeed. I feared him. Um, any message that would speak of the law terrified me in that sense. I remember being especially enamored with the creeds that were positioned in the front of the Lutheran hymnal. If I look around, yeah, here it is got my old Lutheran hymnal right here, which has my name on it from when I was confirmed as a member of the Lutheran church and admitted to the Lord's table, which I probably shouldn't have done it because I wasn't even converted. Um, but I do remember being particularly interested in some of the creeds in the front of the hymnal, especially the Athanasian creed, which talks about uh, the Trinity and the nature of Christ. And um, so I, I learned something there. I learned the Ten Commandments I learned a respect for the creeds of the faith, and I learned that worship is liturgical in the sense that a great amount of scripture should be incorporated into the worship service. And so that affected me. Now, what happened next was totally unexpected. Of course, I was baptized and confirmed and received to the table at the Lutheran Church. But one day, what happened is that I went to another church with a friend. Now, this church was totally different from the Lutheran Church. Uh, this church had church in a in a gymnasium. There were basketball hoops in the church, and I did not know that that was even allowed because I thought church had to be a Gothic cathedral with stained glass windows and statues of the saints. So I was blown away by just the informality of the decorum. But what really struck me was the come to Jesus message that I heard that Wednesday night. I think it was a Wednesday night at youth group. The youth pastor absolutely terrified us with a sinners in the hands of an angry God type sermon. Um, this is so weird, the way this church was laid out, because I'm telling you it was a gym with basketball hoops, and yet there was a fireplace in there because they used this room for everything. I even went back a few years ago just to make sure, like, is this really what this place looked like? Because I remember a fireplace, uh, and indeed, there was a fireplace. And uh, the youth pastor that night, he was handing out um, note cards, and he told us all to write down the names of the people that we knew that weren't saved. Now, that blew me away because that's not the language that we used in the Lutheran Church at all. We did not talk about born again, converted, saved, sanctified, uh, regenerated. Those were not terms that we used at all. And so um, he preached a fire and brimstone message. All the names of the people that we wrote down, I don't know what I wrote on my card, if I wrote anything at all, he took those cards of people that weren't saved and he threw them into the fireplace. And that absolutely terrified me. And then he told us to pray, to trust in Christ, to repent of our sins. And you, you better believe it, I repented the best way that I knew how. I put my head down, every eye closed, every head down. I did exactly what he said, and I prayed that sinner's prayer. Went home that night, or shortly thereafter, preached my first sermon to my sister, my younger sister, uh, in the top bunk of my bunk bed. I told her what she needed to do to be saved, and it was off to the races from that point in my life. I felt called into the ministry from very early on. Now, notice the 
tra the trajectory here from a, a reformational, at least, although liberal Lutheran background, now converted at a Pentecostal church, born again, saved, having experienced God's tremendous grace. Now, in the moment, of course, I thought I was receiving Christ or accepting him or whatever, ever, whatever other language they told us to do. In reality, it was pretty obvious that God, by his Holy Spirit, had been preparing my heart to effectually call me into relationship with him at that moment. So this Lutheran kid now gets saved and converted in a definite dynamic before Christ and after Christ kind of a kind of a way. And not only that, but I get my first taste of preaching the gospel as I shared the message with my sister. Now, one of the things that I did, uh, it was the Lord, because <clears throat> I don't remember anybody telling me to do this. But um, from that time on, from my conversion experience at the Pentecostal church, by the way, I did not have any ecstatic experiences, um, tongues or anything like that. That never happened for me. But I intuitively or by the Spirit's leading began to read my Bible. That is the single most important decision I've ever made in my entire life is to consistently, regularly, repeatedly read my Bible every single day. And so I've done another video on the fact that I do that, it's become part of my my daily life. The last time that I didn't read my Bible, and I'm not trying to brag, I'm only telling you my testimony here, because this is the work of God. The last time that I didn't read my Bible is 1997. So it's been more than 20 years now. It's been 20, almost 23 some years that I've read my Bible every day. That's the most important decision that I've ever made. Now, did I go back to the Lutheran Church or the Pentecostal Church? The answer is neither. Because having been saved at the Pentecostal church, never went back. The friend group changed or whatever happened there as a, you know, early high schooler, middle schooler, whatever. Um, my friend group started going to a large evangelical non-denominational church. Now, uh, mega church for sure. But I will tell you that there are mega churches and then there's mega churches. This was a faithful mega church. This was something a little bit more like... Um, Piper's Church or MacArthur's Church where there was regular expository preaching on a weekly basis. And so now I add to my understanding of my Christian worldview the necessity of expository preaching. And not only that, but pastoral care because for the first time in my life, I got plugged into the church in a vibrant way where I started serving and volunteering and, and even teaching some small group things. Probably shouldn't have been because I didn't know much but giving the opportunity to share the Bible, to uh, somewhat teach others in youth group and then in the college ministry. And one of the things that changed my life, to be completely honest, is I had a youth pastor. His name was Jody. It's a man, but his name is Jody. He invested in my life. He showed up at my wrestling meets. He took me out to Burger King. And so I got two things that are three, maybe at least, from this mega church that were totally valuable. Number one, an example of expository preaching. Number two, caring and loving pastoral care in which you actually care for the members of your church. And three, a sense of strong community because by the time I got into college, um, we had an amazing network of college-aged, vibrant, Jesus-loving students that either went to Akron University or where I went to school, which was Malone College or perhaps some other institutions um, aside. But we had an amazing college ministry. And so it wasn't long um, before I was sure that I wanted to be a pastor, just as Jody was a pastor 
and Pastor Newt, that was his name, K-N-U-T-E. He was an expository pastor. Now, looking back, sure, there's some things that I'd do different from the megachurch, obviously. A worship style is one of those things. But the positives that were um, imprinted onto my heart were so positive that I was compelled to go into ministry. And so I went to Malone College, which was the closest Christian college. Now, here's where it gets a little bit strange, because I put on my testimony this Quaker influence. Malone College is historically a Quaker institution, although they're actually part of the Evangelical Friends denomination, which is a more modern, more evangelical version of what we might think of from American history as the Quakers. Now, though it was a Quaker church in name and in linear history, I was not affected or drawn into the Quaker movement at all. And so that's a bit of a red herring on my, on my uh, influence line there, because what actually happened to me is I ran into some Reformed professors. That's right. Reformed professors teaching theology in an otherwise evangelical friends or Quaker institution. And I praise God for this because it was during my time at Malone College as a Bible major that I learned how to read and write and study the Word. And so I learned how to do exposition. I learned how to do exegesis. I learned the Greek language, although not the Hebrew. And not only that, but I came under the influence of one presupposition, which still, again, sticks with me, and that is the old Reformation mantra of ad fontes, back to the sources. And so while I was at Malone, I learned a love for the old writers. I'm talking about Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and others. I learned to appreciate those who have come before me in the faith, my uh, Christian history class, my church history class, my theology classes, my Greek class, my missions class, all of these things were shaping me deeply. But um, it was the reformed professors that we had there that actually helped me to form my theological worldview. And so you can see now where some of these influences are coming together to make me into the reformed person that I am. You've got my appreciation for creeds, my revivalistic evangelical zeal to preach the gospel, which came from the Pentecostal church, my expository preaching example at the chapel, my care for pastoral ministry that I also got at the megachurch, the chapel, and now I'm drinking deeply of the Reformed waters. And um, I was a little bit different from, uh, from some of the other students because... I found that reading and writing was my thing. Now, a lot of the students, they were awesome at that too. But and I had an inordinate desire to read and to write. And this is funny because in high school, I never had one. Well, okay. I think I had like three papers. In college, I was writing papers constantly. And what was different from me from some of the other students is that they always complained about it. They seemed to not like it. They didn't dig it the way I dug it, especially the works cited pages and the footnotes and uh, the end notes and the works cited pages. I loved all of it. In fact, I had a professor who I'll never forget on the back of one of my papers. I remember I wrote on Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, told me explicitly that I had a gift for writing and that I should press on to go to seminary, graduate school, whatever. At the time, I thought he was crazy because I wanted to go straight into ministry and start impacting people's lives for the gospel. But um, another thing happened while I was at Malone, too, which was really important, and that is that I listened to the radio. 
Now, I was a commuter. I didn't live on campus like a lot of the other students, so that means I drove about a half an hour, 35 minutes to school every day through the snow, through the ice of Northeast Ohio, and it happened to be that on the radio station, I listened to Sproul and then Alistair Begg and John MacArthur. And so with those three radio influences, I ended up meeting Sproul a couple of times in my life, Sproul, Begg, and MacArthur, I got another steady diet of Reformed theology, especially from Sproul. Uh, for those of us who were Reformed, almost everybody who describes themselves being drawn into Reformed theology has got Sproul on their timeline at some point. Now, Begg and MacArthur, they're Reformedish too, although they're Reformed Baptists, uh, but nevertheless, Sproul was definitely an influence. Now, my big crisis of faith happened, uh, not that I ever doubted the Lord, my, my saving experience was so dynamic, never turned back or turned away, but uh, my, my crisis of faith was whether I should be a pastor or a missionary. That was my big decision, because at about that time, I had also been thinking quite a bit about God's global call to evangelism in the Great Commission. And so I knew I was going to be called into ministry. The question is, what form? Was it the pastoral ministry or was it missions? And after Malone, after I graduated, I signed up for a six-month-long mission trip to Africa. And I specifically asked that they send me to the most rugged place they could find, which back in those days was this small little nation of Equatorial Guinea, just a little place off the west coast of Africa. Six months there, got engaged, got married after that one. Well, I didn't. Okay, let me roll it back. Actually proposed to my now wife, my fiance then, before I left for Africa, met her at the chapel, and then we married when I came home from Africa. So just to be clear about the timeline there. Now, when I came back, I needed a job and I wanted to work in ministry. I wasn't sure that missions was going to be the thing, so I thought I'd explore the local church, give them each an opportunity. Uh, found myself in a liberal church that I only stayed a little bit more than a year. I didn't even, I, didn't, I, I was so ignorant still didn't even know there really was liberal churches. I, I, I didn't know <laughs> what that meant, other than I knew that the uh, the Lutheran church wasn't quite hearing the gospel as I heard in the subsequent churches. But after a short time there, then I, I got my next church job, which was in a Presbyterian church. Now, this was a PCUSA church, and I would never go to a PCUSA church now. Forgive me. don't want to hurt your feelings. Just wouldn't. Um, but at the time, this PCUSA Church was pretty solid. And so I worked there for six years as a youth pastor while I went through seminary earning my master's degree. And so while I was at the Presbyterian Church, I had become solid on all of the doctrines of grace by this point. All of the doctrines of TULIP I could affirm easily and readily. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Yes, 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 and yes to all of those doctrines. Um, I also began to appreciate a reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper, which is different from my evangelical background. And then I had to figure out baptism. This was a big one for me. Baptism was a big one for me because I was having kids. Had two kids by then. And ordination was soon to be in my future. And so this, this was going to be a left or right moment for me. This is going to be a, a zig or a zag, but I've got to decide on baptism. And so I threw myself into the baptism discussion, reading as much as I could. Um, I always had the courage to go whichever way I felt the scripture took me, a courage given to me by the Spirit, I suppose. 
But um, I decided, through the best of my understanding, that infant baptism was, in fact, legitimate and indeed biblical. A lot of that had to do with Sproul. A lot of that had to do with my study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. A lot of that had to do with my appreciation for the Ad Fontes writers, back to the sources writers. I was asking myself questions like, how is it that Augustine and Luther and Calvin and all of these guys that I appreciated they were seeing something in infant baptism that I wasn't seeing in my non-denominational megachurch background. And so finally, through a study of scripture, I became convinced that paedo-baptism is right and sound. Now, I realize that a lot of you who watch my videos are going to disagree with me on the comments section. That's totally cool. Still love you. Uh, hopefully you love me back. Um, but through that while, while I was studying... Uh, while I was serving at that church, I also went to seminary, went to Ashland Theological Seminary, and here comes the Brethren influence, but I never looked towards the Brethren direction. Same thing that happened to me at Malone, as I went to that school out of geographic convenience rather than some sort of theological interest or curiosity in Quakerism or Brethrenism, respectively. So instead, while I was at Ashland, once again I found myself, by God's serendipitous grace, under the tutelage of some reformed professors who had reformed leanings, and they allowed me to steer my research projects towards my my reformed confessional Presbyterian leanings. They were totally gracious with that, and so I only became more reformed while I was going at the Brethren Seminary and not less. Um, after that, it was time for ordination. My church, the PCUSA church that I was working at, had a tumultuous break with the PCUSA. A lawsuit ensued. We left the PCUSA. We had to sue out to retain our property or else walk away from it. And we joined the EPC. And so begins my 11 years or more of tenure with ordination in the EPC. Now, I loved the EPC. I'll always speak fondly of the EPC and its influence in my life. That was the denomination that originally ordained me. But I had some issues there. Uh, the primary issue was with complementarianism versus egalitarianism. I still, to this day, cannot see any biblical case for egalitarianism or women's ordination. I knew complementarianism was what was taught in scripture. Um, and not only that, but I began to appreciate more and more the regulative principle of worship and especially uh, the use of psalms in the worship service. And so uh, as I'm thinking through these things, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure the EPC is going to be my ultimate place here because of complementarianism. Um, but not only that, but uh, the EPC is a little bit more open to charismatic expression, and I'm more of a, more of a, a reformed cessationist in my views of these things. And so... Uh, thankfully, though, Faith Church in Florida, they were kind and gracious enough to pay for my doctoral education. And so I, by God's grace, had both of my degrees, my master's degree and my doctorate, paid for by the churches that I was working for at that time. I'm still grateful for these things. So Faith Church paid for me to study Jonathan Edwards at RTS Orlando. And with that began my many years of study with Jonathan Edwards from whom I've learned so many things. Now, one of the things that, that recently has been impressed upon me about Edwards and Whitfield in particular is you're, you think about the Great Awakening in the 1740s and you ask yourself, okay, well, 
like obviously this is a, a movement of God. Only God could do a great revival such as the Great Awakening was. But yet, God uses means, and in God's gracious, magnanimous, benevolent mercy, he chose to use Edwards and Whitfield. So the question is, what is, what is special about these guys that they would be used in such a dynamic way? Of course, it's all the work of the Spirit. They would tell you the same thing. But what is unusual about this moment in the Great Awakening? And, and finally, I, I put it together like this. One of the reasons why Edwards and Whitfield are so powerful is because they have the perfect balance, and think about this with me, of a reformed doctrine. Okay, they're both Calvinists. They have a revivalist, um, conversionist mentality of preaching the gospel under conversion. But they have the pietistic um, burning flame of the heart in love with Jesus. Okay? So, reformed, revivalist, and pietistic. And in that sense, they, they have the best of all three worlds. Their doctrine is solidly reformed, and nobody could complain that Edwards and Whitfield weren't reformed Calvinists in their doctrine. But they had a revivalist zeal for the preaching of the gospel unto the conversion of sinners. And they regularly preached with the expectation that God was going to convert sinners. But not only that, but they had a true, burning, loving heart for the Lord Jesus. I mean, read the distinguishing marks. Read the religious affections. Um, listen to some of Whitfield's sermons about one's love for the Lord. They had this perfect balance of the three main branches of the Protestant faith, reformed, revivalistic, and pietistic. Now, at the same time, they avoided the errors of each one of those three branches. So think about this. They were reformed, but they were not hyper-Calvinistic. Now, sometimes reformed people can stray into this area of hyper-Calvinism, where they actually stop doing missions and evangelism. They stop going on outreach and things like that, because they think, well, God's going to bring his people at his own time, which is true. But that we forget that God uses means to collect his elect from the ends of the earth. So they were reformed, but they were not hyper-Calvinistic. They were revivalist, but they were not Arminian. Okay? They did not try to manipulate or to connive or to distort or to do the kinds of silly things that they tried in the Second Great Awakening under Finney and, and those kinds of guys. Okay, and then third, they were pietistic. They preached of the, the, the heart filled with love, um, but they were not mystical or charismatic, and that helped them to stay on the straight line so that they didn't get led into all the weirdness of the Davenports and some of the other revivalists who ended up doing more harm than they did good. And so, um, you know, you think about all that, and it's like, okay, well, that's kind of the journey that I've been on. Reformed in doctrine revivalist in my desire to reach the lost, but pietistic in, in my, my, I want my heart to be on fire for the Lord. I mean, when I read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, everything within me screams out, yes and amen. I want that kind of a, a glowing love and zeal for Christ. I don't want to be beset by lukewarmth in the faith. And so all of that then, that led me to the big jump from the EPC to the PCA, and that is where I truly believe that I will fit for a very good and long time. So that's the, uh, the short story of how I came to be reformed, and I would love for you to share your journey with me. 
Uh, some of you have been very kind and gracious in, in sharing your, your faith journeys with me. By the way, I do love the letters that you've sent me. I've got several of them recently. Um, let's see if I can find this one real quick. Sorry about that. Should have been more prepared. Where is it? Ah, yes, Frank. Frank B. writes to me from the Republic of Ireland. He tells me a beautiful story of his own conversion experience, his own being drawn into Reformed theology. And uh, I just want to thank you, Frank, for sending me this, this incredible letter. I do like to read your letters. Um, love to read your emails. be nice to get some snail mail every once in a while, too. But anyways, um, I say all that to say this. I'm very thankful that the Lord God has uh, called me and used such a number of different influences and backgrounds to make me into the person that I am today. All right, well, that's it. Um, I don't have any links other than to say don't forget my my book on uh, Jonathan Edwards' resolutions is coming out this October. It's on for pre-sale already. Um, got a new article up on Modern Reformation, so, so check out my stuff there. And otherwise, uh, thanks for listening. It was a little bit of a personal winding story today, but uh, thanks for those who care. Do love you lots, and we'll talk to you later.